chain of events, cause and effect. We analyse what went right and what went wrong, as we discover that many outcomes can be predicted, planned for, and even prevented. I'm John Chigi, and this is Causality. Causality is entirely supported by you, our listeners. If you'd like to support us and keep the show ad-free, you can by becoming a premium supporter. Premium support is available via Patreon, through the Apple Podcasts channel subscription, and through Spotify. Premium supporters have access to high-quality versions of episodes as well as bonus material from all of our shows not available anywhere else. Causality is also a podcasting 2.0 enhanced show, and with the right podcast player, you can also stream Satoshis and Boost with a message as you listen. Just visit engineer.network slash causality to learn how you can help this show to continue to be made. Thank you. Granville. On Tuesday morning, the 18th of January, 1977, passenger train number 108 departed Mount Victoria Station on schedule at 6.09am, bound for Sydney Central Station, following the Blue Mountains line. The 126-kilometre, or 78-mile, trip to Sydney takes an average of 2 hours and 20 minutes from terminus to terminus. The train consisted of eight carriages with a single electric locomotive unit at the front. On board, there was the driver, Mr. Edward Olentwitz, an engineman, an observer, and the guard in the guard's compartment at the rear of the train. The train reached Parramatta without incident and departed at 8.10am, three minutes behind schedule, with approximately 469 passengers aboard, less than the more usual 600 due to the school holidays at the time. The train was then to run express to Strathfield on the upwestern line. At 8.12am, the train approached the next station, Granville Station, at approximately 78 kilometres per hour, that's 48 miles an hour, around a left-hand curve, which was within the rated speed of 80 kilometres per hour, 50 miles per hour, for that curve. Navigating the corner required that the train pass through a set of points, number 73. As the locomotive unit began passing through the points, the unit derailed, and with its carriages still connected, it also derailed carriages 1 and 2 within seconds. With significant momentum, the locomotive unit continued forwards and collided with trestle set number 2 of the Bold Street overpass vehicle and pedestrian bridge above. The impact turned the locomotive further, where it then took out all eight steel stanchions of that trestle, destroying the adjoining train line and finally coming to a rest on its right-hand side, 67 metres or 220 feet past the bridge. Carriage 1 hit a power stanchion and broke apart. Carriages 3 and 4 remained on the tracks and came to a stop approximately half of each carriage underneath the Bold Street Bridge. Within seconds of the trestle support being destroyed, the centre section of the bridge began to rapidly sag and crack. The steel beams normally supported on the north and south abutments were drawn in closer due to the sag with the northern abutment joint no longer overlapping sufficiently with the northern span. The Bold Street Bridge then collapsed onto the carriages beneath it. The northern end of the centre span remained connected to the northern span and was pulled to the ground along with it, though the southern and other half of the central span remained standing, supported by trestle number one. The carriages underneath were of an older wooden construction rolling stock and were known as the old Red Rattlers. They were crushed at best to 600 millimetres or 24 inches above floor level and at worst completely to floor level. Any passengers caught in those crushed sections had no chance. A signalman in the signal box just west of the bridge switched 13 signals into their stop position and sounded the alarm. Given its location, it only took a few minutes for emergency services to arrive, but also the scene was flooded with onlookers and members of the public wishing to help. 
By 8.50am, approximately 1,500 people lined the cutting, with some people disguising themselves as rescue workers just to get closer, but not actually assisting. The disruption caused by the crowd pulled some of the police away from their rescue efforts to control the still-growing crowd around them. The carriages used an lpg fueled heating system during the winter, and whilst it was the middle of summer, the LPG fuel cylinders were still fitted and mostly full on all the carriages. When carriages 3 and 4 were crushed, the LPG began to leak and could be easily smelt by the rescuers. As a result, a spray of water from hoses was used to reduce the risk of sparks igniting any leaking gas, and the decision was made not to use oxyacetylene torches for cutting as a method of freeing people from the wreckage. The rescuers worked for nearly 24 hours straight, with the last body being recovered at 3.20pm the following day. Although there were three cars and one motorcycle on the bridge at the time of the collapse, no one in those vehicles was injured. In carriage one, eight people were killed due to injuries suffered during the impact with the power stanchion. Of those in the crushed carriages, 44 were killed in carriage three and a further 31 in carriage four. 213 people in total were injured and 83 were killed, including an unborn child. It was, and remains, the worst rail disaster in Australia's history. Three days following, on the 21st of January 1977, the Governor ordered Judge James Staunton, Queen's Counsel, Chief Justice of the District Court, to conduct a formal investigation into the incident. He was assisted by R.J. Pascoe Esquire, FCIT Commissioner of Railways, Western Australian Government Railway, and L.B. Laurie Esquire, B.E.F.I.E.O.S.T., Managing Director, Maunsell and Partners Proprietary Limited of Melbourne. 75 witnesses were called, and approximately 350 documents, photographs and articles were received into evidence. They focused on the management of the train, the curve of the rail line, the condition of the number 73 lead. Lead, that's the name of the rail sections that don't move in a rail switch or rail points. There are four individual lead rails in the standard turnout, for example. They also focused on inspection and maintenance, rolling stock, carriages and locomotive, the derailment sequence itself, and the Bold Street Bridge. Interestingly, the bridge had been struck in the same track section twice before. In 1967, it was hit by a locomotive, and in 1975, it had been hit by a loaded coal wagon. In both cases, no significant damage to the bridge occurred. It's unclear whether any remediation or investigation resulted as a result of those two prior incidents. So what went wrong? Let's talk about the condition of the track. The primary cause was found to be, and I quote, the very unsatisfactory condition of the permanent way in the lead of the number 73 points on the up main western line, end quote. Specifically, over time, all railways require reassessment and, when necessary, tightening and adjustment of rail positions to ensure they are within the correct width tolerances for the gauge in question. New South Wales operates on so-called standard gauge, which is 1,435 millimetres, that's 4 feet 8.5 inches wide. The lead-in rail of those points was too loose and had spread wider than the standard gauge maximum allowable limit, allowing the inside of the locomotive's front left wheel to drop down inside the track, derailing the unit. So, poor maintenance. Anyone working in the rail industry understands that checking and maintaining the rails is crucial to avoiding derailments. So how did the rail line get into that state in the first place? At the time, the trains in Sydney were operated by the Public Transport Commission of New South Wales, or PTC for short. 
It was formed in 1972 to consolidate the management of Sydney ferries, buses and trains operating under Chief Commissioner Philip Shirley. Mr Shirley was the former Deputy Chairman of the British Railways Board and was a professional accountant. The rail component was previously run by an organisation under the Commissioner of New South Wales Government Railways, or NSWGR for short. When the PTC took control, the outgoing Commissioner, Mr Neil McCusker, noted the following on his retirement. And I quote, Rising costs, notably salaries and wages and materials, in conjunction with ever-increasing capital debt commitments, have denied the department an opportunity of achieving a balanced budget. This spiralling cost which is more pernicious in the department's most labour-intensive area, that which is concerned with the provision of passenger services. In 1970-71, a loss of $44.3 million was incurred in respect of these services alone. In 1971-72, the loss was $38.8 million. End quote. Mr Shirley began cutting budgets to rein in expenditure and was said to have cut the PTC budgets by 10% in his first year alone. Overtime was banned. Staff hires were regularly frozen or heavily restricted. Despite this, in the following years, the PTC continued to run at deficits of $94 million, $125 million, $204 million, leading ultimately to the resignation of Mr Shirley in October of 1975. By 1976, it had blown out to $334 million. A growing unease amongst the rail division engineers that began in mid to late 1974 culminated in the drafting of a collaborative letter co-signed by 11 rail division engineers and delivered to the general manager, then director of engineering, then the commissioner on the 27th of November 1975 expressing their concerns. And from the letter I quote, Those policies of the Public Transport Commission which determine track and bridge maintenance resources are in need of urgent major reassessment. Maintenance requirements needed for track and bridges have been severely reduced as a result of staff freezes, non-approval of critical staff submissions, and a current overtime ban. The present combination of these factors has led to the situation in some locations where track safety can no longer be guaranteed, e.g. buckled rails, broken sleepers, sharp holes on mud formation, will cause an increasing number of derailments." End quote. A letter like this from inside their own organisation to the commissioner at the top took serious guts to put their names to, considering the fear of recrimination and, frankly, it being somewhat of a CLM, a career-limiting move. Interestingly, the general manager endorsed the letter at the time and the acting chief commissioner, Josh Trimmer, approved increasing recruitment of 250 maintenance staff and ordered a new ballast cleaner. During the investigation, exact figures of how many were actually hired following this was unclear, somewhere between 100 to 150. However, they were hired with a somewhat unusual condition, such that were they to subsequently resign, their role could not be backfilled. Of course, it takes time to recruit and train people, and they barely hired half of those apparently approved. In the end, it was a half-realised temporary gesture from above, perhaps better than nothing, but unfortunately amounted to nothing insofar as preventing Granville from occurring. Let's talk a little bit about the design and construction of the Bold Street Bridge. The official report cited the second cause to be the bridge collapse. The bridge was not designed to stand on only one set of trestles. There were three sections, a northern span, a centre span and a southern span, 
and the bridge spanned over four rail lines, with support trestles between two sets of tracks. The centre span was the widest and hence the heaviest of the three. The bridge design should have been of a type that did not require support pylons across that span width. The calculated weight of the northern and southern spans of the bridge was approximately 250 tonnes each, and the centre span was about 350 tonnes. The bridge was originally built with its deck approximately 1 metre, that's 3 feet and 3 inches, lower than the roadway, and a significant amount of concrete was added to build the surface up to the roadway height. Whilst it's not unusual to do this for modern bridge construction with pre-stressed concrete spans, adding that much concrete for a bridge of that design is extremely unusual and placed an additional load on the structure. Without so much weight, the span would have bowed less and was less likely to have fallen, though if it had, the crushing impact would have been reduced and more people may have survived. The report of the formal investigation was presented to Parliament on the 11th of May 1977. Despite the report exonerating the train driver, where speed had been eliminated as a factor, in the months that followed, he was allegedly called at his home by angry members of the public that held him responsible, and he was unable to return to work as a result. There were other suggestions that it was a particularly hot summer's day, and this exacerbated the issues with the width of the lead-in to the points. Looking at that for a second... The Bureau of Meteorology, or BOM, records from the Villawood archives, they're about three kilometres from the crash site, recorded a maximum of 34.3 degrees Celsius, that's 94 Fahrenheit, that day. Though no time was noted, it can be expected this peak would have been between 12pm and 3pm that day. About two weeks later, it hit 41 degrees Celsius, that's 106 Fahrenheit, with five days hotter than the day of the incident in that month alone. And also to be clear, at 8.10am, it wouldn't have been that hot and warming of the steel wouldn't have been at its worst. That would have been mid to late afternoon. So no, temperature was not a significant factor, if it was any at all. In 2017, Barry Gobb released a book entitled Revisiting the Granville Train Disaster of 1977. Mr Gobb was the first ambulance officer to arrive on the scene of the incident on the day and spent significant time researching records when writing his book. He claimed that rail workers had found a fault in one of the wheels of the locomotive involved in the derailment some six months before the incident occurred. At the time it was discovered, Mr. Gobb claimed that they had no spares on hand to replace the worn-down leading wheel of the locomotive and it was put back into service. He estimated that the locomotive had travelled an additional 50,000 kilometres, that's 31,000 miles, between that moment in time and the incident. The official report does not mention any of these details. A bit more about that specific locomotive. The locomotive unit was a 1957 Cohen Co. Electric unit that had been previously involved in a runaway and derailment in August 1965. Whilst hauling a goods train with 45 carriages, leaving Katoomba Station in the Blue Mountains and on a 1 in 33 downhill grade, its brakes failed and it ran uncontrolled for 10 kilometres at 6 miles, reaching a top speed of 160 kilometres per hour, that's 100 miles an hour, before it derailed. It was repaired and returned to service. Not saying it's connected, but it's interesting nevertheless. Following the incident, the Bold Street Bridge was rebuilt as a single span, and where it was not economical to replace other, similar bridges of that design, their pier supports were heavily reinforced to protect against glancing impacts from rail motors and carriages. On the 18th of January, every year, survivors, rescuers from that day, families of those lost and others gather in Granville to remember those that did not survive. 
The ceremony involves the tossing of a rose from the Bold Street Bridge, one for every life lost on that day in 1977 in what's become known as the Day of the Roses. The incident was turned into a television two-part miniseries documentary drama of the same name. Whilst certain aspects are played up for the drama and some of the plot points vary from the official findings, it's worth a watch if that's your sort of thing. The New South Wales government injected an additional $200 million into the track work budget over the next five years and increased track maintenance staff by 500 people in the six months following the incident. No one was prosecuted. No one was held directly accountable. The investigation stated the incident was caused by a, and I quote, static widening of gauge and poor track geometry created a potentially dangerous situation. Oh yes, why did the gauge separate under load then? Poor maintenance perhaps. Who was responsible for the maintenance on that section of the line? Were they properly funded, properly resourced? The New South Wales government paid for many of the funerals of those that died and paid compensation amounts to family of those that died, starting at $500, some reported at $1,000 and more, apparently based on an assessment of each individual's suffering as a result of the incident. Others that survived but were injured, some with lifelong health impacts, received nothing. The amounts that were given out were considered by many of the survivors to be insulting and effectively pointless. In 1997, a memorial was built on Carlton Street, adjacent to the Bold Street Bridge, to honour those that died in the incident. In 2007, a plaque was placed on the bridge to mark the efforts of railway workers that had assisted in the rescue efforts on that day in 1977. Out of frustration for a lack of action, a group of people with a connection to the incident created what they called the Granville Memorial Trust, or simply the Trust, that collectively made submissions on rail safety issues, including recommendations for fines for safety breaches to be dedicated to funding rail safety improvements, and campaigning for the establishment of an independent railway safety ombudsman. So what do we learn from all of this? Whether or not you believe that the leading wheels were in a poor state of repair, or whether the track was in a poor state of repair as a greater contributor, it's a matter of which of the different groups within the PTC at that time were more responsible. In the end, the cost-cutting of the organisation, denial of new hires and suspension of overtime over a long period of time took their toll on the entire rail system at that time. Everything degrades with time and everything needs to be maintained to continue to be safe to operate. Cutting maintenance funding delays the inevitable, pushing costs out of one budget into the next and each time you roll the dice and hoping nothing else breaks. Run to fail is not a valid strategy when lives are at stake. The choices made about the overpass bridge weren't that great either, which also comes down to money. It's always cheaper to build a multi-span bridge over that distance than a self-supporting single span, despite the fact by building a single span bridge you eliminate the collapsing risk almost entirely if there's an impact. On the 4th of May 2017, 40 years after the disaster and on behalf of the New South Wales government, the then New South Wales Premier, Gladys Berejiklian, gave a formal apology to the victims of the disaster in the State Parliament House. Unsurprisingly, the ABC reported that, and I quote, Many relatives and survivors are not attending today because they feel that the apology is 40 years too late. End quote. Yeah, I get that. On a personal note, in 1999, I lived in Sydney, in Hewlett Street, actually in Granville, three blocks from the Bold Street Bridge, well, the new one. 
When I took the train from Granville into the city on weekends, I walked right past the memorial on Carlton Street. And because when you're walking up the hill along Railway Parade, you don't notice it side on. One day, I was stuck in a traffic jam in Sydney. I know, right? Anyway, I was stuck on Carlton Street at the lights trying to get over the bridge heading to Parramatta Road. And I noticed the memorial on the left through the car window. And the next day, I asked some friends from work about it. My workmate at the time, Rob, was in his mid-50s, and he lived in Hazelbrook in the Blue Mountains. He took the exact same train route and had done for decades. He knew someone that was injured in that crash. I felt pretty bad, actually, that I, I didn't know anything about it at the time. Of course, I was only one year old when it happened, and I was from Rockhampton, not even in the same state. So why would I know? Well, maybe because it's the biggest rail disaster in Australia's history, maybe. I still feel a bit bad about that for not knowing at the time. But for the people of the Blue Mountains and Greater Sydney, it's left an indelible mark that's still very strong more than four decades later. There was a comment made by a listener of causality about a previous episode. They said money. It always comes back to money. Now, normally, I disagree with that. As a general rule, it doesn't always come back to money. But in this case, unfortunately, it did. Looking at this from a high-level view, it comes back to a simple question. Why was the railway losing money in the first place? Before the PTC were given the rail system to operate and maintain, it was already struggling, and they slashed budgets even further in an attempt to fix that budget. But the answer isn't that simple, though. The size of the railway system had grown beyond a certain level. The rolling stock and the rail lines were now so old they required replacement or extensive repairs. There weren't enough people using the trains balanced against the fare prices being charged, hence the cash flow was terrible. The biggest driver, though, seems to be the age, and this is something that the 11 engineers pointed out in their letter. Once again, I quote, It should be remembered that each year the track system is one year older, and unless repairs match deterioration, then more staff still will be needed in following years. End quote. It seems simple. But preventative maintenance is key. I've heard it time and again. Do we really need to inspect this thing right now? You can't run trains over it when you're inspecting it, but you have to do it already. When financial pressures overtake operational needs to operate safely, the balance is wrong. And left unchecked, that downward pressure will ultimately erode your ability to operate safely. The worst part is that when it starts... It's not always obvious, and it can take years for it to manifest, but when it does, it will end badly. The hardest part of making that decision, do we need more money to operate it safely, but there's no more money, what do I do? If there really, really is no more money, then you have to take that option and just shut it down. But there were other options. The PTC could have stopped some of their services, restricted some of the lines from being used, increased fares, gone back to Parliament and demanded more money. But they didn't. They just cut costs over and over, and they still couldn't make it break even. They just kept cutting, with management saying, it'll be fine, and when the engineers stood up against them, it was too little, too late. If you're in that position, holding the power, and you feel like cutting costs is the best answer, stop and ask yourself, if the others before you needed that work to be done, they needed those people doing that work, what is it you think that you know that they didn't? Maybe the question should be, do I really, really understand the risk and consequences of my budgetary choices?
if they'd had have asked that question that way instead, maybe things would have ended differently. If you're enjoying Causality and you'd like to support us and keep the show ad-free, you can by becoming a premium supporter. Premium support is available via Patreon, through the Apple Podcasts channel subscription, and through Spotify. Just visit engineer.network slash causality to learn how you can help this show to continue to be made. Thank you. A big thank you to all of our supporters. A special thank you to our silver producers, Mitch Bilger, John Whitlow, Kevin Kosh, Oliver Steele, Leslie Law Chan, Shane O'Neill, Hafthor, Jared, Bill, Joel Maher, and Katerina Will. With an extra special thank you to both of our gold producers, Stephen Bridal, and to our gold producer, known only as R. Causality is heavily researched, and links to all materials used for the creation of this episode are contained in the show notes. You can find them in the text of the episode description of your podcast player or on our website. Causality is a podcasting 2.0 enhanced show, and with the right podcast player, you'll have episode locations, enhanced chapters, and real-time subtitles on selected episodes. And you can also stream Satoshis and boost with a message if you like. There's details on how, along with the Boostergram leaderboard, on our website. You can follow me on the Fediverse at Chigi at engineered.space, on Twitter at John Chigi or one word, or the network at engineered underscore net. This was Causality. I'm John Chigi. Thanks so much for listening.